Mark chapter 12, verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is God's word. Good morning, Christ community. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is John. I'm one of the elders who serves here at the church and feel privileged to be opening up the word with you all this morning. We're looking at Mark 12, 18 through 27. Michael just read it. And if you've been tracking with us in this series or if you've studied the gospel of Mark before, this passage probably looks uh, familiar in some ways. Once again, we have religious leaders who are feeling increasingly threatened by Jesus' growing influence and popularity. This leads them to question Jesus publicly with the goal of discrediting him. Jesus, of course, sees this coming from a mile away and puts said questioners in their place. Reminds me, frankly, of the last sermon I gave where the Pharisees approached Jesus with a question about divorce and remarriage. Reminds me of the sermon that Ken gave last week where some different leaders pose a question to Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. And I have to admit, my initial reaction upon getting assigned this text and reading it over was, you know, what, what new is there to say here? You know, because it just felt like a, a familiar thing. Um, and I wondered if I'd have to just sort of put a, a previous sermon on repeat. But then I remembered something about our author here, Mark. I remembered that he is not one to be redundant. He is not one to include superfluous information. Of all the gospel narratives, Mark's is the most concise, the most expedient, the most judicious in terms of words. All right, so what does that tell us? It tells us that if Mark put a particular exchange here in his gospel account, he likely did so for a very particular reason. And that for me was kind of the hook for this passage, is figuring out, okay, this looks like a familiar thing. We've seen this before, but what is unique here? What is particular? What is the, the, the unique headline that God wants us to pull from this passage? And then 
kind of spiraling back a little bit, perhaps more importantly, what does this have to show us or teach us about what it means to follow Jesus, which, as you recall, is, is really the banner that hangs over this part of the gospel. And so that's kind of the journey I want to take us on here this morning. For the outline people, here's our three questions. Number one, what exactly is going on in this passage? We're going to walk through the text and just make sure that we understand the nuts and bolts of what's happening here. Number two, how is it distinct from other passages of its type? And number three, why does it matter for us, those of us here in 2020 who are attempting to follow Jesus? So what's going on here? How is it distinct? And why does it matter? All right, let's begin with that first question. What is going on here? And in order to answer that question, we have to understand who we're dealing with here, the Sadducees. Uh, This is a fascinating group of people, in part because we know relatively little about them. This is the first and only time they're mentioned explicitly in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, They're referenced only 12 times in the New Testament. This is a group of people that was wiped out after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD with no official documents surviving. So we don't know a ton about this group of people. However, based on the scripture references we do have and a few historical accounts from Josephus, the Jewish historian, there are a few themes that emerge when it comes to this group. Number one, they were apparently a theologically conservative group of Jews, especially when compared to their opponents, the Pharisees, who were considered a more progressive group of Jews. Uh, And they were primarily conservative in that they only treated the Pentateuch as authoritative, the first five books of the Old Testament. So they took those five books seriously, but they dismissed everything else. And for whatever reason, they took a hard stand on that issue. And this was presumably the reason they didn't believe in a resurrection, which Mark notes here in verse 18, is because as they looked at those first five books of the Old Testament, they didn't see a lot of evidence for a resurrection. So they're theologically conservative, or at least a certain type of theologically conservative. However, they were also well-connected both socially and politically. Of all the different Jewish sects, they got along the best with the Roman Empire. Uh, They were apparently considered important members of society. They were educated. They were wealthy. Uh, They were influential. So this was a group of people that was firmly entrenched in the status quo. I was trying to think of what sort of a modern-day equivalent to this group would be in I don't know that there is one. It's sort of like religious fundamentalists meet coastal elites, which at first glance, those two groups of people don't seem all that similar. But what do those two groups have in common? They both think very highly of themselves, of their status, of their knowledge, of their opinions. And this is certainly true of the Sadducees. Uh, this is a group that thought they had arrived. They had their religious basis covered. They had their political basis covered. They had their financial basis covered. They liked who they were in society, 
and they wanted to protect that. And so those are the Sadducees. And they come to Jesus with this uh, convoluted question uh, that's about something called leveret marriage. Uh, That's some important context here. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 6. This was a Jewish law that called for a Jewish man to marry the childless widow of his brother. So if I'm a Jewish man and uh, my brother, who's here, uh, dies and um, leaves a wife but no children, it is, in this custom, my responsibility to take in his wife and produce offspring with her. The point of this is twofold, or it was. One, to make sure that the wife of one's brother is financially taken care of and that uh, that brother's property and land stays in the family line. And number two, it's to make sure that she isn't forced to marry a Gentile, which was a very important thing in that day. The point of the law was not in any way to promote polygamy or concubinage. That's not what it was about. So in some ways, it's similar to that law about divorce and remarriage that we looked at several weeks back, where it doesn't represent the ideal for marriage. Rather, it's there to provide protection for a woman when something less than ideal happens. So the Sadducees take this well-intentioned compensatory law and turn it into an absurd hypothetical question whereby there are seven brothers in a family. Uh, One by one, they all die, uh, but all of them end up being married to the oldest brother's wife at some point before they do. And then it leads them to the end where they say, okay, if all this plays out in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? In verse 23 there. And even just in the way they ask the question makes it clear that it's a sham. I mean, the Sadducees are well known for not believing in a resurrection, yet their question supposedly presumes upon a resurrection. And likely this little question, hypothetical scenario, it's likely a party trick that this group had used many times before. And the key thing to note here is that their goal in asking this question of Jesus is to make him look like a fool. They want to make his position that there is a resurrection look absurd and illogical. So that's what they come to Jesus with. He responds, and I don't know if he's getting tired or impatient or if he's just particularly put off by this condescending group of religious leaders, but he pulls no punches in his response. Right out of the gate, he says this, verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So he begins his response not by telling them that they're wrong or how they're wrong, but by explaining why they are wrong. He just sort of presumes upon their wrongness. And he says two things. One, you don't know the scriptures. And two, you don't know the power of God. Talk about hitting them where it hurts. These are two areas the Sadducees prided themselves upon, and Jesus goes right after them. It's a response that would have shocked observers and should have grieved the Sadducees. 
But given their extremely high view of themselves and their extremely low view of Jesus, it's likely that this response doesn't even bother them. Regardless, Jesus isn't done. Having addressed the root of their problem, he then proceeds to offer a more technical answer to their question, probably for the benefit of others listening more than anyone else. And he says this in verses 25 through 27. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So two things to note in these verses. Number one, Jesus is teaching them and teaching us here that relationships in heaven will not be as they are on earth. And understood in a certain way, these teachings from Jesus could be received as discouraging. I think there are many of us that when we think about heaven and we think about what we look forward to in heaven, a big part of that is being reunited with people that we care about, whether friends or family members. And and so there may be a temptation there to, to kind of be bummed out by what Jesus is saying. But no, Jesus is not saying that relationships will cease to exist in heaven. Nor is he saying that these relationships won't bear some similarities to what we experience on earth. What he's saying here is that relationships in heaven will simply be different than they are on earth and likely better. Because in heaven, we will be at our personal best as human beings. We will be the people that God has ultimately created us to be. And thus we will be both more lovable and capable of loving than we ever have before. So Jesus is not giving us bad news here or discouraging news. All he's saying is this. Look, you can't apply your paradigm for earthly relationships to heavenly ones. It's kind of like putting new wine in old wineskins. It's, it's not going to work. So that's, that's his first point, is that relationships in heaven are going to be of a different nature and quality and, in fact, better than they are here on earth. Number two when it comes to the issue of whether the dead will be raised, he cites Exodus 3, verse 6, which is no accident. Remember, this is, Exodus is in the Pentateuch, one of the five books that this group deems authoritative. And so, again, he goes to where they're strong, he goes to their turf, and he quotes uh, God speaking to Moses through the burning bush, where he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. These are patriarchs in the faith, all to whom covenantal promises had been made, all of whom were deceased at that moment where God said that. And yet, God says he is still their God. And so Jesus' point here is this. He's like, look, if, if they died and that's it, and they're not coming back and there's nothing more, then in what sense can God still be their God? And in what sense can those or will those covenant promises be fulfilled? 
It's not possible. Which, of course, leads Jesus to conclude there at the end, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So, just tying a bow on this first question, what do we have going on here in this interaction? It's more than simply a rhetorical victory for Jesus. What we have here is a complete evisceration of the Sadducees' knowledge, of their credentials, of their logic, their presuppositions, their hearts. He takes them down on all those fronts. They're not just wrong about the resurrection, Jesus says. They're fundamentally wrong in their approach to the world. That's what's happening here, which leads us to our second question. What is distinctive? What is important? What is noteworthy about this interaction that's perhaps different from some of the others of its kind that we've looked at? And uh, there there are two things that I notice here, uh, and you can kind of see if you track with me, two observations, two things that seem somewhat distinct to me that I think sort of unfold into one point. You can tell me what you think. Number one, I think it's worth noting that Jesus, again, he attacks the Sadducees where they feel strongest. Not at the periphery of their belief system, but right at the heart and center of their belief system. To tell a group of Sadducees that they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God is akin to telling a group of engineering professors that they don't know anything about math, or telling a group of judges that they don't know anything about the law, or telling a group of doctors that they don't know anything about the human body. Jesus is completely and utterly discrediting them where they feel most educated, most confident, most unassailable in their position. I think that's something we're supposed to note here. Number two, there's tremendous irony when you consider what is being discussed, resurrection, and when it is being discussed, the Passion Week. At this point in the story, we are in the final days of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Jesus knows that he will soon be crucified and three days later resurrected. So here the Sadducees are enlightening Jesus about the foolishness of his position that the resurrection is even a thing, and yet in a week, Jesus himself will be resurrected. Imagine, if you can, what it might have been like for Jesus to be having this interaction with this group on this topic, knowing what's right around the corner. The irony there is off the charts, and it's something I think we're supposed to notice. So if you sort of put those two observations together, what is Mark trying to show us here? What is he trying to impress upon us? Well, I think this exchange offers us a fresh illustration of a familiar theme, the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. Think about what's happening here. The Sadducees are enlightening Jesus about the Word of God when he co-wrote the Word and is the Word. They're trying to tell him there is no resurrection, and yet John says he is the resurrection, and we know that he will soon be resurrected. 
They're trying to make him look like a fool when history makes it abundantly clear they are the fools. So Jesus isn't simply correcting or modifying or clarifying their worldview. He's turning it upside down, both in what he's saying and in what he is about to do. So, final question. Why does that matter? Why does that matter to us? What are we supposed to do with this as we seek to follow Jesus here and now? And I think this passage can do at least two things for us. Number one, I think this passage has the potential to convict us. Right? It's easy to pity the Sadducees in this passage because there's such a huge gap between the people they think they are and the people they actually are. It sort of reminds me of those old American Idol tryouts when, you know, these terrible singers would get up there and sing their hearts out and they think they're so great and, of course, they would be exposed on national television. And obviously it's somewhat entertaining, but more than it's entertaining to me, it was always just kind of sad and and pathetic, right? Because, again, that gap, these people think they're one thing, but in reality they're this other thing. Well, here's the reality as it relates to this passage. We're all a lot more like the Sadducees in this story than we are like Jesus. And I think it's interesting and worth noting that their biggest blind spot was found in a domain where, again, they felt most educated, most respected, most confident, most empowered. And in their efforts to make Jesus look foolish, they were the fools. And so I think that's good for all of us to consider. The the notion that it's possible, it's possible that our biggest blind spot, that my biggest blind spot, is within a domain where we slash I feel most educated, most respected, most emboldened. And sometimes, in our attempts to make someone else's view look foolish, we're, we're the fools. And I'll just, I'll give you a frank example from, from my own life as I was thinking about it this week. Um, 22 years old, read Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover, and uh, was hooked, was like, yep, this is it. He's figured it out. This is exactly how everyone should handle their money. And uh, I told anyone who would listen that was true, and a whole bunch of people who weren't listening, uh, I felt like I had been enlightened, I had figured it out, I was now sort of hovering above the rest of the world, as it were, when it came to this issue of personal finances. And I just went around, like the Sadducees, telling them, this is how it is, this is what you should do, and you're fools if you don't follow every Dave Ramsey letter of the law. Thankfully, I've aged and matured, and now looking back on that version of myself who was going around and constantly trying to enlighten everyone on this issue when I wasn't even being asked to, uh, I'm ashamed of that. You know, I thought everyone else was a fool. When looking back, because of the way I was approaching that, it's now clear to me I was the fool. And honestly, there's some of you 
watching this morning who uh, have felt the brunt of that. And I even made a few phone calls yesterday just uh, apologizing. But again, it's this example of an area where I felt so confident, so knowledgeable, like I've got this figured out, that it created this blind spot for me. You know, that's the last place I thought I was off, but now in hindsight, it was probably one of my biggest blind spots at that time. And so I don't know if that's the case for you or if it is in what area that might be, but that might be just something to take before the Lord today, this week. Think about what's an area that you feel confident, that you feel educated, that you feel like, okay, I've really got things figured out there. And just bring that before the Lord and just see if maybe there isn't uh, some pride in there that God may want to work out of you as he's worked out of me on that financial issue and a host of others over the years. So, so number one, if and where God wants to convict you with this exchange, let him do that. But number two, I think God also wants to encourage us with this passage. Because when it comes to the upside-down nature of God's kingdom— in reality, we're the biggest beneficiaries. Because again, remember, we are the bad guys in this story. We are way more like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans. You know, the, basically the people who are about to kill Jesus, that's us in this story. And what do we deserve for that? What we deserve is eternal death. What do we actually get? The opposite. Eternal life. Our sins are forgiven. Our bodies will be resurrected. Our relationships will be fully restored. No pain, no tears, no hardship forever. That is what we get. And why? Why do we get the exact opposite of what we deserve? One word, Jesus. Jesus. He lived the life us fools were supposed to live, but couldn't. He suffered the punishment us fools were supposed to get, but didn't. He rose from the grave in a manner us fools told him was impossible, but it wasn't. Talk about a flipping of the script, a reversal of fortune, a surprise twist. The hero, Jesus, takes the fall for the fools, us, and we all live happily ever after together. So, when it comes to this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, yeah, sometimes there's a sharp edge to it. Sometimes it's convicting. Sometimes it sort of needs to put us in our place. But at the end of the day, this passage and the kingdom it points to is good news for us. Because in the end, we get way more than what we deserve. And I hope and pray that you'll receive this good news in that vein. So please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Mark. We thank you for this particular passage and the exchange that we looked at here this morning. We know, Lord, and we trust that 
Um, if there's something in your word, it's there for a reason. And uh, to date, today we're presented again with just this radical upside-down kingdom that you've ushered in here. Um, it's it's counter-cultural. It's counterintuitive. Um, and again, sometimes that can be hard to understand. Sometimes that can be convicting. But boy, ultimately, that's good news for us because in the end, um, we don't get what we deserve, which is death. And we do get that which we don't deserve, which is uh, eternal life. So uh, where we need to be convicted on this front, Lord, please convict us, convict me. Uh, But I do pray uh, that you would uh, also encourage and comfort all of us with the knowledge that no matter where we might be foolish, no matter where we might be prideful, no matter what our blind spots might be, um, that your blood uh, has covered that and we get to now enjoy a meal uh, that reminds us of that. So um, above all, Lord, help us to uh, absorb and digest that good news. Uh, Once again, I pray that it would humble us and that it would lead us to to worship you uh, and, and obey you. Uh, more fully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.